Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast, brought to you by the Evergreen Network. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller of Media Mavens Podcast, here today with Mick Mulroy, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Middle East and former CIA Paramilitary Operations Officer. Hi, Mick. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? That is such a long title, but it is so well-earned and justified. I'm here with Marjorie DeHay um, at Antic Law, my co I'm excited to have you on. I know you've been running through the press circuit with what's going on in Afghanistan, but... It, and I love seeing you out there talking about this. But what we talked about prior, I think things are so much worse over there than what everybody's realizing. So I think we want to kind of dig in a little bit about what's going on. Uh, we saw the news last night. The Taliban finally got into Cabal. We know the president has left the country. I know I think you said the vice president's still there. But um, we do not realize the severity of this because everything we're reading is, you know, that 60 to 90 days we assume they're going to take over, but then within 48 hours of all of that, they've already taken over the entire like, cabal, the airport. I mean, it's just becoming a Taliban-ran country right now, which I think is becoming a little nerve-wracking for a lot of people. So we want to talk to you a little bit about this. You know, we know this is not a political statement, but we know the decision to be to pull our troops out was not a great decision. But I want to ask you this because Trump started this when he was in office to pull the troops out. And now Biden is pulling them out and it was an effective political way to pull them out. Do you think a lot of this with the Taliban has been kind of by design since Trump made that announcement years ago? Or do you think a lot of this has just swelled up since we made official decision with this administration? Yeah, Sarah, that's a good point. You know, I'm not a partisan person, but I, you know, I make comments on policy. And in my opinion, and to your point, it was a mistake to negotiate with the Taliban, which started on the previous administration. We excluded the Afghan government from those conversations. So it was just the U.S. and the Taliban putting them on an equal par, which I thought was not wise, and trusting them, which was very not wise. That was started on the previous administration, and they had essentially promised to withdraw forces. So I disagreed with that position. And then under this administration, they they had the ability not to do it. The Taliban has broken the agreement over and over and over again, which by my mind means that we didn't have an obligation to, to carry out our part. I mean, we have a lawyer here. You could, they have they breached the contract is the way I would put it. So I know that they're using that as like, a, like their hands were tied. I just don't agree. So to the whole point of keeping troops there, we have had troops in Germany. Italy, Spain, you know, since the end of, in, in Japan, since the end of World War II. We have had, you know, NATO was, was built essentially to win the Cold War. We still have a NATO. We still have troops in Kosovo. I mean, ask how many of your listeners knew that. We still have troops in Syria, Iraq, Somalia. So we keep troops there because in places where we've had conflicts, because it's in our national interest. It isn't doing a favor. It isn't it isn't really, you know, this kind of political moniker of a forever war. We had, at our height, we had 130,000 troops. And we were losing quite a few servicemen and women. And we were spending billions of dollars. 
I would agree that that probably was a bad idea. I think we should have probably kept a smaller force and been much more modest in our efforts over there. But that was already done. So when we decided to pull out forces, we only had 2,500. I think we needed more to stay. I think that number that uh, that the uh, military planners were saying was needed, the minimum was 5,000. But 5,000 forces, we haven't lost a person in 18 months. The Afghans are doing 98% of the fighting. It was not too much to preserve everything we fought for for 20 years. So all our strategic objectives were to remove the Taliban and prevent Afghanistan from becoming a safe haven. We had accomplished that. And we kept accomplishing it as long as we could keep those troops there. By withdrawing those troops, I mean, you already said it, your question, Taliban's now in charge. So our strategic objectives of going there 20 years ago is now done. We have lost it. The Taliban is an extremist organization. Their deputy is a leader of, it's called the Haqqani Network. That's a U.S.-designated terrorist organization. The Taliban version in Pakistan is a U.S. desert terrorist organization. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are there. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are coming back in droves right now. This will be a safe haven for terrorists once again. And all the progress, all the progress we've made on human rights, particularly for women, in 20 years, is gone. It doesn't matter what the, the Taliban says. They, you know, There's some new organization. not a new organization. They just know what to say. But the rights of women are already being removed. There's universities in Kabul, even in places like Kabul, where they're being turned away now. They're no longer allowed to go to university. They're no longer allowed to go outside without a male relative. They have to wear you know, certain clothes or they will be publicly punished. You know, it's, it's not a good situation. And I do think it was the wrong decision for our own national security interests. But now we have to deal with the consequences. Do we know why Biden decided to pull the trigger? Because I do understand, look, We've been there for too long, a lot of money and expenses. He didn't have to pull them out. And I think he was very ineffective of how he did. It was very abrupt. And I felt the Taliban saw an opening there. But, you know, it's like you guys said, we have a due diligence as a United States. We have to protect the United States. We have to protect other countries, partner countries. We are that country of freedom who partners with everybody. And I feel like by pulling the troops out, we weren't doing our side. I, I get, you know, they're not in compliance over there on a bunch of levels, but were we in compliance? Because we pulled our troops out knowing that that puts the United States and the rest of the world at a higher risk of terrorism now more than ever before. So I feel like this is our responsibility. We made this mistake. We shouldn't have done it. We didn't uphold our end of the bargain. I mean, is that accurate to say that? I think so. I mean, I think this was a bad decision and then it was poorly executed. So for media reports, none of the president's national security advisors, particularly on the Department of Defense front, agreed with the decision. He, But he's the president, so he gets to make the decision. But I think whenever you make a decision that is contrary to the advice of your secretary of defense, your chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, your CENTCOM commander, you better have a good reason. I mean, you, you can't because you are the commander in chief, but you better have a good reason. And then the poorly executed part, you know, I would I would challenge and again, you know, the buck's off with him. That's what he said. And this is this is difficult leadership, you know, certainly decision making. But I would say that we should not have withdrawn the combat forces until we withdrew most of the, the entirety of the embassy staff and the US citizens. Because as you can see, we withdrew all the combat forces, then we started withdrawing the civilians in the embassy, and now we're trying to find all these Americans around. And we're sending back, there's 4,000 troops are going back today. There'll be 4,000 troops 
in the airport today. So I think that speaks for itself that we should not have pulled the original. Now, got to be fair, we did not predict the complete collapse of the Afghan government and the military. The IC, I think, was very clear that it was going to happen. They didn't think it was going to happen at this speed. That is an important point that they made today during the press briefing that I think is accurate. But again, I'm not a partisan person. I don't belong to a party and I don't want to belong to a party. I just comment on policy as it relates to national security. And I think I think uh, I'm in the majority. Let me ask a question. You know, it's, it seems like now it's a, you made an excellent point where you said 20 years of accomplishments have now kind of gone down the drain. Is there a way that putting troops back, is there a way to we cover this 20 years or are we now just in such a horrible situation that we'd have to send even more troops to try to fix this? Yeah, that's a good question, Marjorie. I, I, you know, I was an advocate for not pulling troops out. I understand now the situation is such that trying to re-enter troops other than what we're doing, which is just removing. And that's what the Taliban said is very unlikely and, and very improbable without really a combat effort which would cost a lot of American lives to get back in, particularly right now. If you look at Afghanistan and you don't look at where it came from or where it was 20 years ago, it's easy to, to be you know, upset about the circumstances. But when we first got to, to Kabul, there was only a couple hundred thousand people there. There's five million people. The, the country is almost completely unelectrified. There's like, I, I don't want to get the stats wrong, but like half the country now has power. You know, Women didn't go to school. They didn't even participate in society, period. Now we had a female mayor in Kabul, right? I mean, that's, that is that is leaps inbound in the last 20 years. And the international community should be proud of that until, you know, the current situation. So I don't think there is a chance we'll reinsert troops unless there's another 9-11 type attack. And then the question will still be to be determined, right? Because, you know, if the American public said, okay, we got attacked again. I'm sure we'll respond, you know, because Americans are good at responding to being attacked. Uh, that's a good thing. But, you know, for them to say, hey, let's go occupy another, you know, country and spend another, I mean, that it's going to be a very difficult decision, political and operational, when we didn't have to do that because we didn't have to withdraw all the forces. That being said, we are where we are. The president made a decision. And, you know, if I was on his team, I would say, okay, disagree with that. But now it's time to figure out a way um, to make it work. So you're going to hear a lot of the term over the horizon, which means you're being able to conduct operations in a country from another country. That's, you know, quite literally over the horizon. So that is going to be the next step. And that's going to be on the plate of the Department of Defense and the CIA to make happen. Are we going to keep our embassy there? Because I know we were talking about skeleton teams in the embassy and then keeping the troops at the airport or on the base there, just ensure safety when people come and go. But it's looking from what we're seeing and hearing, that's not even possible anymore to get. I mean, I know you're fighting to get as many citizens out as possible, but I feel like since it's been so quick and abrupt, the Taliban and that airport and surrounding space, are we actually going to even have anybody there within another 30 days? Or is it just get everybody out and get the troops out while we can? Because I don't see how... They could stay there if we have if the Taliban has our weapons, they have gained power, control. If they control the government, don't they control the airspace of who comes and goes? Yes. And the fact they actually own the civilian part and control the civilian part of the airport now. We're only on one part, the military part of the airport. And most of our forces are guarding the personnel that's still there and our aircraft. Right. So I don't know 
I don't think the plan is to keep a skeleton crew there. There's nobody at the embassy now that I know of. The ambassador and everybody's out at the airport. And I don't know if they intend to keep a diplomatic presence there. I, I, that's to be determined. I don't know exactly what they would do. We have no partner in the Taliban. I mean, why would we want to have a partner? Germany and a lot of our EU partners, uh, NATO, have already ceased all cooperation and stopped. Any, and that's the other thing. So international funding, developmental funding is, is essentially ceased. Uh, nobody wants to fund the Taliban because they, they have zero belief that the money would actually get. I mean, think about it. They're, they're, they're going to get Taliban money to build schools for women, girls? No. Right? No. So, I mean, it's also going to have a severe impact on the people of Afghanistan because these international aid is going to dry up uh, near nothing except for like groups like China and Russia. So I would say the embassy is impressive. We spent almost a billion dollars on it, my understanding. And now it stands uh, empty, as far as I know. Or in the worst case scenario, it'll be taken over by the Taliban. But so, so we control part, the military part, our area of the airport, do you think it's going to be a matter of time before they start climbing the walls, getting over there, and then our guys just get out while they can with their lives? Because it feels like we don't want our troops stuck there and not able to get out because the Taliban's not just taking over the airspace, the airports, but preventing. I don't know if there's you know a ground-to-air missile issue brewing among them, but that would be my concern. How long can they hold out over there? Yeah, that'd be my concern too, particularly with the last thing you mentioned, Sarah, the the ground uh, air missile, this they call SAM surface air missile. Apparently they're showing up all over the place there. I don't know who's potentially giving Taliban all these SAMs, but my guess would be uh, the Russians. Yes. So according to the State Department briefing and the DOD Pentagon briefing, troops are just there to get the U.S. Embassy staff out, U.S. citizens, and these uh, special immigrant visa holders. And then they're gone. So they're going to fly out. So to my knowledge, we're still on the same timeline, which is at the end of this month. And then the Taliban will expect us to have departed. They will assume we're departed and then they'll just take down whoever's remaining is where the concern is. I don't think they would be. I mean, they would be. That would be a huge mistake to try to try to attack the U.S. We still have great capabilities. We could still we could, we definitely could still defend ourselves. I mean, they send you know, 3000 Marines. And now I think uh, a large contingent of the 82nd Airborne Division. So, I mean, we, we have the ability to defend ourselves. And the Taliban is, is you know, we toppled them before without that effort. It was primarily just using the Afghans in the north called the Northern Alliance and just a small group of CIA and special forces officers. So uh, let's not turn the Taliban into more than they are. They are a ragtag militia. They're just very brutal and they're very effective at dominating a a population. In terms of their numbers, what would you say the estimated number of Taliban? So I've seen anything between 75,000 to 200,000. I think that's probably, the number's probably getting closer to 200,000 because, you know, once you start winning in Afghanistan, people tend to jump on board because, quite frankly, that's just a survival instinct. You know, they saw, you know, from Alexander the Great to the British Empire to the Soviet Union and now the U.S., right? So they've seen it all, you know, and uh, and once once one group looks like they have the upper hand, uh, people tend to join it, not necessarily because they're ideologically aligned with it, although I think plenty were with the U.S., it's because it's a survival thing. So I would imagine that that number is getting very high, probably closer to the 200,000 estimate. I just think it's very difficult to tell because they're not, not going to publish their own numbers, and they obviously don't wear uniforms. 
So it is a kind of a best guess from the intelligence community. What's the ratio of that to population over there? Like, are we like 25% Taliban, 50%? I mean, do you have any idea of where we are over there? So, I mean, because you also have to include Taliban sympathizers, right? Because there's some people that will fight, some people will provide support, some people just support them. I don't know. That's a good question. I've never seen that statistic anywhere. They come primarily, there's a lot of different tribal and ethnic groups in Afghanistan. They come primarily from the Pashtuns, which is a very large group. And, you know, that one of the things they kept saying today is women will get, you know, will, will have their rights according to Sharia law. Well, I mean, the Islamic countries of the world interpret that differently. We have plenty of places where that are Muslim based and women have rights. The Taliban has already, we already seen what the, the way they interpret it, which is, you know, a very, very, very conservative, if not warped version of Islam. And they don't have rights. Their rights are they, you know, they can take care of the kids and they can stay in the house. I mean, you know, when we were there, uh, women rarely ever went outside, their, when we first got there, went outside of their house. And if they did, they literally had to be with their brother or uncle or they were completely covered. They sleep in separate parts of the cop house, only with women and children. And by the time, you know, last time I was there, you know, there's a, again, I mean, I, I'm a highlight because it's work. Then the female mayor of, of Cobb, right? So you got political leadership that, I mean, in 20 years, that's a pretty substantial change. A lot of women were getting educated in college at university in, in Cobb. So they, they know what they're supposed to say right now to try to not raise the ire too much of the international community. But I think their actions are going to be very consistent with their actions in the past. And human rights are going to go out the window. But um, how does this leave us? Where do we stand with our international partners? We know Russia and China have been, you know, kind of talking with them behind our backs. We know they're supplying weapons of mass destruction, more finances. How does that affect us right now? And are we sure that this and our partnerships going south, or is it? Do we just accept it is what it is, given how those countries are ran? So specific to Russia and China, a lot of people. That we're making the argument that we get out of these quote unquote forever wars. We're like, we got to shift to Russia and China. Well, under a national security strategy that was developed in 2018, Russia and China are a higher priority than counterterrorism. And I agree with that. I was part of, you know, one small part, but part of the effort that did particularly defense strategy and the irregular warfare part of that. I agree with that. But what are Russia and China doing right now? Well, they're rushing to go to Afghanistan to try to partner up with the Taliban so they can get the natural resources. Afghanistan. So, you know, if we're going to counter them, we just gave away all the influence we had in Afghanistan by basically abandoning the government there. So to my colleagues that keep making that point, we have not effectively countered China or Russia. We've actually enhanced their influence there because they're going to come in and China's generally not interested in becoming involved in conflicts, but they are in a constant search for more natural resources. Russia I mean, you've seen what they did in Syria. They partnered with probably the the number one war criminal in our generation, you know, with Assad there. And they've propped him up. So, and they use that for their advantage. Now they have a port on the Mediterranean, right? Who thought it? So I see both of those countries using this situation to their own benefit and to the detriment of U.S. influence. So where do we go from here? I mean, now that, you know, our troops are out, now that we're having more of a, Liability, not liability, but terrorism is more imminent now here in the U.S. and abroad. What are we, are we focusing our resources and our security 
to protecting us and harder and more stringent flights and travel laws to keep us safe? Or is it just going to be kind of a see what happens, wait and see right now until the next strike comes? The over the horizon concept, which I'm sure they're working on, we have the number one military when it comes to being able to move in what you call project forces around the world. So we can get aircraft, you know, strike aircraft that can, you know, drop munitions and kill kill people that might be plotting to attack the United States. Well, I think it's going to cost us more. You know, we're going to have to come out of Kuwait or Qatar. Problem is, my old group, we have to collect the intelligence so we know who's doing this, what they're trying to do, so that the command authority can make a decision to take a strike. And we got to know where they're going to be to actually strike. All that requires intelligence. That's very difficult to do when you're not in the country anymore, right? And all the Afghans that we used to partner with to do that are fleeing for their lives right now. So our intelligence capability has been reduced significantly. And so we're not even, maybe, we're not even going to know of the threat that we're trying to mitigate. So we're going to have to figure out how to do that. So over the horizon, intel operations are very difficult. But I'm sure the CIA, my old group, is doing the best they can to figure that out. So that's going to be one thing, to actually mitigate the strike. The other thing is just a constant, you know, trying to secure our country, prevent people from getting in. You know, Al-Qaeda used a, their methodology is to create a team that goes and conducts an operation, just like 9-11, right? They sent teams from several different places. They got training. They hijacked planes. You know, you know what happened. ISIS, they try to reach out to people online and radicalize them, and they're already there. But they don't go for the grand attack. Like, Al-Qaeda wants to up itself every time. ISIS is fine with, hey, you got a truck? Okay, cool. Go find a festival and just drive your car through the festival and kill as many people as you can. And it's uncomplicated. It doesn't require training. It doesn't require resources. And it's really hard to stop unless you somehow intercepted the conversation between an ISIS person and the person online. You see what I mean? That is hard to stop. A big Al-Qaeda operation is easier to stop because there's so many parts. In so many parts where we can we can find out what's going on. So there's different methodology, and they both have impact. You know, it's not as big of an impact if a pickup truck or whatever drives to a fair in Iowa, uh, and then ISIS claims it and it killed 17 people. Uh, but it's a big impact because what if they did it next week and the next week and the next week? One thing I, I like to point out is you never see police officers sitting around talking about the end of the war on crime. Because there's not going to be one. You know, I'd like to think there was, but there's been crime. There always has been crime, and there probably will be crime. They can mitigate it, but they're not always looking for the off-ramp where they can stop being police officers. You see what I mean? We have to accept that terrorism is a ideology that is spurred by desperation in many places, not no economic opportunity. And it's going to continue. We have to accept that, and we can't just be looking for the off-ramp continuously. We have to, we have, to have people that are willing to fight against these people, as long as they're willing to fight against us. And we have an absolute obligation to protect the people of the United States. We'd be in the Department of Defense, CIA, the FBI, et cetera. Yeah. And like, I remember reading like that there was dozens of attacks thwarted each year from various terrorists and that social media has really become like this communication portal. They said, just WhatsApp, et cetera. So how do you think the media and social networks could do a better job because they have the access to these communications, yet they're allowing these, you know, these events to be planned? It's true. So you have several problems in that. You have the actual platform 
where people can spread. And it's not just jihadist terrorists, right? We also have homegrown domestic terrorists, both sides of the aisle, extremists, right? People can post anything they want. And if people want to believe it, they believe it. So it almost becomes like takes on their own conspiracy theories, et cetera. So that's the same way that Al-Qaeda through the Inspire magazine is one of their most well-known and most professionally produced, can recruit people all over the world. It used to be very difficult to do that. Now it's, it's hard to shut down. So to answer your question, I think when somebody's advocating for violence of any sort, they should be shut down. The social media platforms make a lot of money off this, having the platform, right? So they have an absolute obligation to ensure that they're not facilitating uh, violent extremists. So they, they should be held accountable, I think. That's one. Two, there's, and I don't, this is more difficult. There's plenty of apps nowadays that are very difficult for people to break, right? Because people, for whatever reason, want to be able to communicate, you know, confidentially. Well, so do the bad guys. And so if, if you take the scenario we just talked about with ISIS finding one radical, but they do it through a encrypted app, I mean, you don't have to be an FBI agent to figure out how difficult it's going to be to stop that attack in Iowa. So I don't know what to do there because, you know, people have a right to their privacy. You don't want to throw everybody else's privacy out the window because of terror. So it's tough. It's tough. And we're going to have to constantly evolve as national security professionals to the changing environment that our adversaries are, are exploiting. Well, it's kind of like the whole thing went through with Trump. There, I mean, we use social constantly to chat and bunch up business stuff. But it's a platform and it's a privacy. Was it Fourth Amendment? I get the right to publish, the right to talk. Twitter, Facebook made the decision to cut Trump's social when you know everything got out of him. It was a big controversy with Facebook and other lawsuits. It's a public platform. You don't have a right to spy on us, take our input. You don't have the right to be in our chat rooms, our privacy. So I think it is going to be a big issue to where we as a public get more censored, which we've already started seeing on algorithms because there's no there's no there there how they're going to handle this because as they start pulling back and cutting more of our privacy off, more privacy, more chat rooms, more off the grid, third party apps are starting to pop up everywhere right now where you have total privacy. But, you know, this all started, you know, into the dark web because, I mean, that was really the root of social where you could terrorize as horrible stuff that the government actually created to catch terrorists and these cells, but then it grew into the drugs and all the other chaos around the world that people and the bad guys that use it for. There's so many layers deep of VPNs and where we could hide offline. It's a huge, like a, a technology task force the government would have to put in place to really figure out how to get in there and penetrate these cells and what's going to happen on the horizon now. There's no other option. That's correct. And as they get more sophisticated, we have to get more sophisticated. I mean, there's going to be some level of things that get through. It's not a, it's not that we accept it, but it's, it's just a fact. yeah. It's, Good question. But, you know, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, while we're talking about technology, because then we're going to wrap in a few minutes, not to pay off, Mick, but given that we're, troops are going out of Afghanistan, given what we're seeing and how it's going, are we going to be forced to lean more on technology? Because we've talked about the drones and those issues. Mm-hmm. With warfare, are we going to be forced or do you think we're going to move more into more sophisticated technology and drones, whatever we need to, to get eyes and ears on the ground, protect the United States? Or are we already there? We just don't know about it publicly. So I think we're going to see almost an exponential increase of technology and, and national defense. I think we're literally on the verge of breakthroughs in so many areas. 
on drone and other automated weapon systems. I mean, the Marine Corps has gone to a complete force structure where they're re- essentially redoing the way they think of warfare. They get rid of, they got rid of their tanks, for example, and but they're like every Marine squad's going to have a tethered drone and an untethered drone. I mean, they're, they're, it's going to be, and of course, the rest of the military is following as well. I'm just a little biased toward the Marine Corps, but that's, and, and, and our adversaries are too. So you're, you're going to see, I think, uh, really an exponential increase in technology integrated into our combat forces. And I think that's a good thing. But, you know, there's a lot of questions that come from that because, you know, when you add artificial intelligence into these automated drone systems, you know, when do you take the human component out of it? Is that a good idea? You know, they, the actual term for it that you're hearing people talk about is the post-heroic phase of warfare, meaning that we won't have necessarily humans that have to risk their life to go fight. We will have drones that are being told to do it and fight other drones. And, you know, once they beat those drones, then they could turn our drones against the civilian population or, you know, it's, there's a lot uh, back there. I know that's probably for another episode, but to answer your question, you're going to see, I think, a substantial increase in technology integrated, not just in the counterterrorism arena, but in every spectrum of warfare. Wow. It's so good having you on, Mick. I think we've covered a lot. Marjorie, do you have anything before parting shots to answer with him? Well, I think, you know, that this is obviously an ongoing situation that you really analyze quite deeply. What do you feel like this is going to look like in two years? So I'm concerned that we will have a situation where the Taliban is obviously firmly in charge with now hundreds of billions of dollars worth of our weapons and equipment. And then Al-Qaeda and ISIS basically having it as a safe haven, both for training and for launching operations. That's what I'm most concerned. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I mean, obviously, uh, that's what I'm, I'm most concerned of. And, you know, this, the other part of this is we have a lot of partners that are going to be left behind. We won't get them all out. And it's, it's, it's sad. You know, I was talking to them. I was literally talking to them minutes before I went on the air with ABC. They were calling me from Afghanistan, telling me that they actually found a way to get to where they needed to get to get out. So it was a good news conversation, but for every one of them, there's probably 10 that aren't. So that is going to be a terrible part of this that's left behind. Also, you know, I'm leaving this discussion and I'm going to the Marine Reconnaissance Foundation and the group that's doing a retreat here in, in the town I live in. There's 45 Gold Star family members of it, right? And a lot of them are Gold Star family members because their their fathers and some mothers uh, died in Afghanistan, right? So there's going to be a whole generation of uh, veterans of Afghanistan and Gold Star kids and spouses that are going to ask, like, why did we do that? Why did my my father, my husband, my wife, my mother have to die over there if we're just going to quit, right? We didn't end the forever war. We just ended our part of it. So, I mean, and I don't have a good answer to that question, but it's going to be a legacy that the U.S. is going to have to to deal with because it's going to be a question that I think people are going to ask for a long time to go. Yeah, it's just, it's horrible what's going on over there. So our hearts do go out to all these families, and especially the people over there trying to get out right now. So we're just hoping more forces move in, gets them out safely, and we can get past this. But I know you've got to run, Mick. It was so good having you on again and updating us. Keep us posted. Anything news breaking. And then we'll look forward to seeing you again in a few weeks on our next Global News Watch. All right, guys. Great, great discussion. I look forward to the next time. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens podcast on your favorite podcast provider 
or on the Evergreen Podcast Network. To learn more about the podcast or our guests, log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.